Matthew 11, starting in verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear and the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and yet they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We come before you at this time asking that you would speak to us through your holy, inerrant, infallible, and all-sufficient word. We ask that you would speak to us exactly where we need you to. You know where each of us is this morning. You know what we're going through and what we need. But most importantly, we need you. We need to know more of you, and we need to know how to love you and to serve you with our lives more. And so we ask that you would speak to us at this time through your word in such a way that you would shape and, and fashion us and, and transform us by the renewing of our minds according to your truth so that we would continue and, and increasingly become a people that reflects you and gives glory to you in what we do every day, not just at this time. But we need your help now to understand. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would use the word that you have given to us through the prophets and the apostles in the past. Use this precious, eternal word of God to move us, to challenge us, encourage us, comfort us, convict us, and whatever else you know we need from you this morning. We thank you that we have the, the freedom to meet like this, to worship you as Christians, 
And we ask that in a world that is, is, is changing, that you would help us to remember and to learn all the more what it means to be a Christian according to your word. And keep us faithful as, as individuals and as a church collectively to what that means. That we would see our identity as Christians as primary beyond anything else about us. So that true unity in the faith would manifest. So that true zeal for your kingdom would be a shared reality in our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are so gracious and loving that you would show your love for for the Father and for your people, that you would have taken on flesh to live a life we can't and to die a death that we should and to rise again so that we have hope beyond the grave. Pray for those who are mourning the loss of loved ones at this time, that, that this hope would be strong in their hearts from your word this morning, that they would be reminded of the promise of the gospel for any and for all who look to you in faith. And we thank you that we can trust based on these things that you have accomplished already. We can trust that you will come again, Lord Jesus, and take us to be with yourself and make all things new in a new heaven and earth where there will be no sickness and there will be no death. Only pure light and love and righteousness. We praise you for these things and we ask that you would help us to be strengthened by these truths. Forgive us for the the times this week that we have neglected to give thanks to you and to be content in you. Help us to to know what that means more and more. And help us to serve you with our lives and all that we do because of your love and the way that you have served us. We thank you that you're interceding even now at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, we, we look to you again at this time, asking that you would have your way as we continue to worship in the word at this time. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable and and pleasing and glorifying to your name. For it's in your name that we ask these things. Amen. As As I mentioned, we are... In Matthew chapter 11, if you happen to walk in during the prayer just now, you can find Matthew 11 on page 688. That's page 688 in the Pew Bibles. And we're particularly going to focus on the first 19 verses. And I have three points that I want us to consider. And this sermon is entitled, The War Against the King and His People. I want to just jump back in your memory, if, if possible, to the first, or rather the second sermon in this series, when we looked at Matthew chapter 2, and we saw that in the very birth of Christ, there's an evident war taking place, a war against God and His people that's been going on since the Garden of Eden, since the beginning of time. It's really a war on the Word of God. To get people to disbelieve that God's word is true. That God is true. It started with that question that Satan asked Eve. Did God really say? Did he really say? And we, we run with that to our own destruction. But we saw even in Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 2. That King Herod sent out instructions to try and kill Jesus. And killed thousands upon thousands of innocent babies out of his greed and his pride and his fear of losing his position. And behind the scenes of attacks like that are obviously Satan. So today we see 
as Jesus taught his 12 apostles in chapter 10 and sent them out and said, I'm sending you out like, like sheep among wolves and talked about all through that commission that he gave them in chapter 10. He talked about people who would turn against them for his namesake, even in the family, the closest loved ones we have will sometimes turn against us for being faithful to God. And we start to see this opposition increasing here in the next couple of chapters. And the first place we see that is in the first six verses of chapter 11. The first point is that we see John the Baptist struggling with some doubt and some confusion. Secondly, we see Jesus encouraging John, maybe challenging him a little bit. Some people say rebuking him, but the the second point is that Jesus encourages perseverance based on God's trustworthiness, God's faithfulness. And lastly, Jesus describes the hearts and the minds of unbelievers. And in particular, unbelievers who are so close to the, the word and the people of God and the works of God, but yet reject it. So let's look at this first point. John struggles with doubt and confusion. I think this is encouraging in a sense because if we're honest, all of us struggle at times. We struggle with doubt and confusion over what's happening, why it's happening to us, why it's happening in this way or in this time. I want to just look at the first verse before I get into that anymore. Look at verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And so we see Jesus, after commissioning those 12 apostles to go out and do what's, I guess, known as the first commission, to go to the lost sheep of Israel, continue to reach out to God's people, we see Jesus going out on his own to, to preach. And again, this is really the heart of Christian ministry. Teaching. It can happen through different venues like, like sermons, the one you're listening to, or Sunday schools, the one that are going on right now. Downstairs. But at the heart of Christian ministry is this ministry of the Word. And again, that's because the war that Satan is waging is against God's word. And in Ephesians 6, when Paul talks about spiritual warfare, he makes it clear that as Christians, as the church, we really only have one offensive weapon, and that is the sword of the Spirit. And so in the middle of all the miracles and the healings and the exorcisms that Jesus is doing throughout his earthly ministry, he remains steadfast in proclaiming the word of God. And so we see Jesus remaining steadfast in verse 1 to do that. But then notice what happens in the next four verses. John the Baptist has been put in prison. We'll get into the, the why in a moment. But John is in prison. And like most of the Jews, if not all of them at that time... John, while he actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah, was expecting that certain things were going to happen immediately at that moment in history when the Messiah came. They expected that he would overthrow the Roman oppression and rule of the day and immediately establish the kingdom that was promised. And so... We see these words here. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? And so, we've got to wrestle with this and, and ask ourselves, Is John acting like an unbeliever? Now, the minority of the scholars that I saw as I was looking at this verse and trying to do some research, it's very few of them that actually take that view. I think it's more 
accurate to say that John is struggling with some doubts and confusions. Because John is saying, I expected that you would overthrow the Romans and set up this kingdom, but I just heard that you're continuing to heal and preach and not overthrow those who are oppressing us. In other words, John is saying, go to Jesus on my behalf and help me connect the dots. There's something that's not lining up. Unless we we think that John is really in unbelief, Jesus goes on to commend John the Baptist. And let us not forget, John the Baptist was the one who baptized Jesus in the beginning of his public ministry. So this was not an unbeliever again. This is a man who's wrestling with his faith. He's saying, I've spent years studying the truths that were passed down through the ages. I thought this kingdom was going to be established. Jesus, help me connect the dots. So we see John basically seeking clarity about the the judgment that should have come. The justice and the overthrowing of these rulers. It's like John saying, Lord, please connect the dots. But I want you to notice that in the midst of his doubts and his confusion, he doesn't just stay in isolation, even though he's locked up. And do you notice what direction he sends his disciples to? This is an instruction for us too. Have you ever struggled? Maybe you're struggling now with doubt and confusion. Let us learn from a man in prison who was a believer. We must go to Jesus. We must go to God even in the worst time of confusion and doubt. There is nowhere else to go. And as we look at examples like this throughout the Bible, one thing we learn that's an important lesson is that God has never promised to reveal all of His plan to us and all of His timing. See, this is what John the Baptist had to learn. And Jesus' response in verses 4 through 6, some people say it's a a mild rebuke, maybe. But Jesus' response is basically saying what he had said to his apostles in the previous chapter at the end of verse 22. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so as as John receives the message Christ is about to give to him, notice what he says at the end of verse 6. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. He says, John, in other words, you're being faithful to what you were called to. Don't allow your imprisonment to distract you or to deny you of confidence in the trustworthiness of God and His Word. God's timing may be unknown to you, but remain steadfast. But how does Jesus do that? This kind of ties into the second point. Jesus encourages us, and we see the patience of God in this. Even the, the, even the, the scholars who think that it's sort of a rebuke say it's a very mild rebuke. And I think that we see the patience of God in Jesus' response. Jesus doesn't simply say, yes, I'm the one to come. But he does say yes. And notice how he says that he is the one to come. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear and the dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Jesus takes John's disciples who have been pointed to himself and instructs them and everyone present, including John the Baptist, by doing what? By pointing to God's word. John, in his doubts and his confusion, points his disciples to Christ. And Christ points them and us 
to the Word of God. Amen. You see, these things that Jesus is talking about, the, 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 the leprosy being cured, the lame walking, the deaf receiving their hearing, and the dead being raised, and good news being preached to the poor, this was basically a summary of all the works He was doing before and would continue to do. This was quotes, basically Isaiah um, 19, 35, and there's a long list that you can go back. If you look in your Bible later on, you can do a study on this. And you can go back and read multiple passages, especially from the prophet Isaiah, where the prophets prophesied that these things would happen when the Messiah came. And these are signs and symbols. This is where the confusion came in for John the Baptist. They were signs and symbols not for that exact time in history and not even for our time today. But these were evidences that this is the life that we're looking towards. A life of, of no leprosy and no deafness, no blindness, no death. This was evidence of the coming new heaven and earth and also that this one is going to bring in a new covenant so that's how jesus answers yes i'm the messiah he says john let me remind you of the scriptures endure even in prison and as the apostle paul says towards the end of his life he says i am in chains and i am bound but praise god the word of God cannot be bound. I think this is also a great encouragement for us. Maybe you feel stuck. And if you think about the demeanor of uh, the personality of John the Baptist, which Jesus goes on to, to refer to as Elijah. If you look at Luke chapter 1 verse 17, the wording is a, a bit clearer there. One who will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah meaning he's very similar to Elijah in his prophetic ministry. John was a man who lived out in the wilderness. And here he is confined. So there's many reasons why, why John was struggling with this. But Jesus says, John, persevere and be faithful to the end. Jesus also wants John and his followers and us today to know something. There will be many oppressive rulers over you. There will be many who cause you to doubt God's ability or God's goodness or God's timing. There will be those in positions of authority, even in this day, and we see it now, who try to oppose us in persevering in the faith. And sometimes when that happens, we feel like the psalmist who cries out, how long, O oh Lord? And Jesus wants us to understand something. At his appointed moment, all justice will be dispensed. All true righteous judgment will be passed from the hands of the one who always does what's right. Of the, the judge almighty. The Lord of hosts. But it isn't this time that John the Baptist and these disciples and Jesus was living in. Not just yet. And so Jesus is trying to encourage John. Jesus is trying to encourage his disciples. And this is another example for us to take from this, last, from this passage, I think. And notice whether John was intending to do this or not. Even in his imprisonment, by sending his disciples to Christ... John is making disciples. He is continuing to send them to the person who is our ultimate discipler. Prison cannot even stop him from remaining committed to discipleship. What excuse could we find today? There's really none. And I think that's a, a bit of a, maybe a bit of a rebuke, but also a great encouragement. Nothing that happens to us can stop God's plan unfolding or should hinder us from being committed to this task that we have been given of discipleship and evangelizing, sharing the gospel and worshiping our King. Even if the rulers 
throw us in jail. We'll eventually get to the reason as to why John the Baptist was in prison. Maybe some of you remember. But John the Baptist wasn't actually in prison for preaching the gospel, primarily. You see, what does it mean for us to follow Christ? What does it mean for us to stand with Christ? It means that we stand with Christ in the sense that Christ stood for God and stood with God, His Father. He stands with the Word. And the righteous principles of God's Word, while we should be the people more than anyone who display them in our lives, were intended for all humanity to conform to. Things like what it means to be a man and be a woman, what true marriage is, how we should view things like abortion and the like. And you see, what John had done was he had gone to the the ruler over them at this time, a non-Jew, by the way, and he had said to Herod, you should not be married to this woman who is your brother's wife. You can go again. You can go to Mark, uh, Mark chapter 6, I believe it is. You can go into the Gospel of Luke. You can go to the 14th chapter of Matthew and see a little, a little account of this time in history. But John had told Herod, you're doing something wrong by taking your brother's wife. It's called adultery. God has made you to function differently than you're functioning. And Herod didn't like that. So John the Baptist was put in prison. You know who else didn't like that? His brother's wife. And so there was a little party that was thrown. And her daughter, Herodias, was basically entertaining them. And Herod got so caught up, as men do sometimes, that he said, whatever you want, sweetheart, I'll give you even half my kingdom. And so Herodias said, okay, and went over to her mother. And she said, I know what I want. I want John the Baptist's head cut off and put on a platter. And because of the fear of man and the love of man pleasing, Herod realized he had to follow through and that's exactly what eventually happened to John. At this point in Matthew 11, that hasn't happened. But his end is near. But I want you to realize what it means to stand with Jesus Christ does not just mean preaching the gospel and seeking to encourage each other as Christians to adhere to God's revealed truth. It also means that sometimes we will find ourselves in a position where we should tell other people too. You need to turn away from this kind of living because we weren't made to live like this. And it is to your detriment. Perhaps you have heard or have said it yourself that we shouldn't be shocked when the world does not adhere to God's standards because we're all born in sin. And only those who are truly born again will have a heart to try their best at least to follow God's will. And so sometimes people have, have run with this idea to the extreme of saying that we, we really shouldn't try to put Christian principles onto other people. Well, remember, we're talking about the principles of the Creator. And maybe you've heard statements like this, why should we be so concerned Use a very real example. Why should we be so concerned about respectful homosexuals who choose to live in that lifestyle if it's not hurting anyone, including themselves, or people who are living in adultery or fornication? If they're nice and it's not hurting anyone, why should we be concerned about it? Well, there's at least a few answers. The first one is, God is concerned about it. But let us not be naive and think that because we don't see with our eyes that there's some sort of hurt, 
that it's not damaging. The first thing that all sin damages is a God-given conscience. And it takes someone that is willing, like John the Baptist was in this case, to tell someone out of love, here's how things should be done in this area. Because God said so. To sometimes take that risk and it takes us to be willing and, and trusting God enough that he will use his truth to touch the conscience, whatever the cost is, to get his truth out. And here's ultimately what I'm getting at. We cannot be a people of the Great Commission. We cannot be a people who stands firm on one aspect of our Christian faith, but then be loose on every other thing that God has made clear in His Word. That applies to all of us in the pews, all the way up to the King of England. Everyone is a sinner who needs to be born again, who needs to repent and believe the Gospel and submit themselves to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So we see John here in prison getting some feedback from Christ who says basically, persevere John. And then we see Jesus' gentle encouragement, I think. Maybe rebuke. Either way, Jesus is loving him by saying, look back to the word, be patient and endure. But notice what Jesus says in verses 7 and onward. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? And these are a series of rhetorical questions. He doesn't really want an answer. He's trying to make a point. Did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? And that's basically just a, a word picture to say someone that's tossed to and fro by whatever's going on. That's feeble and, and wobbly and will bend this way if that's the way the world goes and will bend that way. Is that what you went out to see? He doesn't give an answer because he's making a point. You wouldn't see that in John. What about someone who is dressed in fine clothes? No, you didn't go out to see that. That's for people who live in palaces. Well, then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, a prophet. And this one is greater, he says, than all the prophets. And then he quotes from Isaiah 41. And from Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And Jesus tells all those who are listening after sending his disciples back to him, John's disciples back to him. He tells them, that's who John is. That's who John is. And he goes on in verse 12 to actually say, from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of Heaven has been forcefully advancing against great opposition, in other words, and forceful men try to lay hold of it. That's what's happening with the Pharisees and with Herod who puts John in prison. And he says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what Jesus is saying there is, John is bringing in his own life, even in his imprisonment and eventually very soon being beheaded in his death, John is bringing the end of a historical era to close. He's the end of the prophets. Remember what the prophets were made to do? All throughout the old covenants, there was one individual chosen by God who God would speak to like a mouthpiece and say, now go and tell my people. And they would come to the people of God and say, this is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. And they would give instruction. They would give warning. They would give comfort. They would give encouragement from the very mouth of God. Jesus is saying, this is the last one of them. And what he was teaching about was me. Because Jesus actually fulfills that prophet role himself. He is the final prophet and priest and king. And so Jesus is saying there's a new era that's coming in with, 
with John. And those who believe this will believe in me. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he says he is the Elijah, again, the Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. Right? The Bible doesn't teach that Elijah's soul can somehow travel to earth and indwell someone else. No, we're all uniquely made in the image of God with a body and a soul. And when this body dies and goes into the grave, your soul goes to the presence of God or into everlasting darkness as Jesus will go on to teach where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Everlasting hell or heaven are the destinies of each man. Elijah's soul remained where it was. But this man, John the Baptist, was fiery like Elijah. He was denouncing leaders like Elijah was. He was proclaiming the word of God in a similar fashion. And so by him saying that, that John the Baptist fulfills this, he's basically saying the same thing he told John's disciples, I am the Messiah. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Last but not least, we see Jesus describing the hearts and minds of unbelievers. And look with me at verses 16 through 17, through 19, excuse me. It says, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in marketplaces and calling out to others. We played a dir- the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Uh, basically, at this point in time, children would hang out in the marketplace. And since they didn't have YouTube, they would make up stories. And these two stories were basically enacting a wedding and a funeral. You see, I wasn't as privileged as some of you to know this, but we have an amazing thing called imagination. (laughs) And that's what these children were using. And Jesus was basically rebuking those who were rejecting him by saying, listen, you're like children who said, oh, let's, let's pretend that this is a wedding. Let's pretend this is a funeral and be, be sorrowful. And you just sat there, indifferent. You're just indifferent to it. You have no interest in it. He goes on to say, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. John basically would be the parallel to the mourning, the funeral, in other words. But, but you see, when they fasted and, and followed similar patterns of, of diet and so forth, like John, that was actually a way of both mourning and t- just basically depicting judgment. But they, they rejected John. They said he had a demon. But then what's the opposite of that? But then the Son of Man, that's Jesus, he came eating and drinking. He, didn't, he wasn't fasting yet. He wasn't fasting He was eating and drinking. And they say, oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Praise God for that. And he says, wisdom is proved right by her actions. You see, Jesus is basically uh, both warning and rebuking here. He's basically saying, we have an issue in our rebellion. We want God on our own terms. That's what the people were doing in their rejection. They had Christ right there in their midst doing these miracles and and showing love and grace to outcasts like tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners who need the grace of God and were the farthest from being able to go into the Holy of Holies or, or close to the inner courts rather where the worship would have taken place back then and felt that exclusion. And they reject him. And Jesus is saying, you think you're wise in rejecting me, but wisdom 
true wisdom is going to prove itself in its actions. The same justice and this judgment that they thought that would immediately be brought in their time will come. The grace of God in Christ, the love of God in Christ will prove itself through Jesus' life and his followers throughout the ages. And I think this is a, a warning for us too. Maybe you're listening to this and you're disinterested in the Christian faith. Uh, you, you know, you talk about it a little bit. There's certain things about the Bible or maybe God's viewpoint that you think are useful for life. But you don't really have a passion for God, a love for God, a desire to know Him more and to make Him known. And maybe you've become disinterested or a bit bored even because you had false expectations. I spoke about this in the first point last week. Jesus doesn't lie about the cost of following Him. He begins His commission to the apostles by telling them that they need to have biblical realism about life in this world and being a follower of Christ in this life. We must not have false expectations. What is it that interests you or what is it that you are looking to Christ for? These are important questions to ask. And then Jesus saying here, basically making this word picture and saying this is how people are treating him and John the Baptist. He's describing the hearts not only of the unbelievers present at that time, especially the Jews, but of all from that point on. All unbelievers who are rejecting him. In fact, he goes on in verse 20, which we'll get into more next week. Look at verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities or pronounce judgment in the, on the cities which, in which most of his miracles had been performed. And look at the, the reason. Because they did not repent. Verses 20 through 24, the beginning of, of woes. When Jesus says, woe to you. For various reasons. But notice what he says there again. He mentioned this in chapter 10, verse 15. Verse, verse 15 of chapter 10. He says this. I tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. The town that has no interest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Has no interest in, in seeking to know God and to align themselves with his word. And he brings up Sodom again. In verse 23. If the miracles that were performed in you, Capernaum, which, by the way, was his main place of ministry. That's where he actually had the one recorded sort of set location to do his ministry. He stayed there. He ate there. He did most of his miracles there in his teaching. He says, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You will go down to the depths. Most translations say Hades or hell. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. There's a very serious lesson in this. I don't know if I remember the wording correctly, but in the movie... Um, Superman there's this phrase that's very famous now it's to um, with much with great power there is great responsibility or something like that Spider oh Spider-Man sorry thank you thank you brother Jack um, with great power is great responsibility you see as Jesus finished in chapter 10 teaching in the, the last few verses that there are degrees of rewards for our faithfulness. Not that we can be saved by our faithfulness, but that those of us who are saved by grace through faith in Christ will receive various rewards 
There's also degrees of judgment. And in places like the Cayman Islands, which have greater degrees of revelation of the word of God, those in our midst who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ will have a greater degree of judgment in God's hell. Please hold that dearly to your heart and let it cause a little bit of sensible fear. We need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. But we need to tell them that they must believe it because there will also be consequences for hearing the truths of the gospel and rejecting it. For living so close but yet being so far to the revelation of God. Only God can help us to remain faithful to the end. Only God can keep us in His love and in His loving grip and help us to to have the the compassion that we need to and, and the words that we need to. But Jesus here gives us these words as well. In verse 6, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Let us be challenged by that because there are, there are great challenges in our near future to just being faithful as a Christian, just living life, not even trying to do more than get through the day and keep the faith. There are going to be increasing challenges To stand with Christ means to stand against the world. Literally, there is a war against the king and his people, as I said in the title. And this war is not something that we fight by getting worked up. We don't need to shout, we don't need to march. I'm not giving you instructions about what to do. You can march if you want. We don't need to march and have picket fences or picket signs. (laughs) We don't need to march and we don't need to have signs and we don't need to try to get worked up about what is wrong. But we have to speak the truth in love. We have to stand firm on what God has revealed as true. And this will come with a cost. And when I say that we're at war against the world, I don't mean that in a mean, unloving way. It's just a reality. There's two kinds of people in this world. There's those who love God because they are born again, they're trusting in Jesus Christ, they're united to Him by faith, and they love God because of who Christ is and what He has done for them. And there's those who hate God. Because of sin, no matter how we want to think and feel about it, those who are not Christians, our closest relatives and friends and co-workers, even spouses sometimes and children, they do not love God. They do not love God. They are at enmity with God, the Bible says. And they will use all the wisest sounding phrases like tolerance and things like that to try and justify false ideologies. But as Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. And the only true wisdom, as Solomon says in Proverbs 1.5, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise that kind of knowledge. So we have to be those who fear God and not man and recognize this war for what it is. And remember that we have one sword, one offensive weapon and prayer. Prayer and the the, the word. Those are really our, our weapons of war. And then going out in love to, to do what Jesus came to do. To lay down his life as a ransom. To seek and save the lost. He is the ransom price. 
but we go down and share him with others and do our best to set the example as a platform that we stand on to share this Christ. So let us look to God to ask his help to remain faithful to the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we again, we come before you in the name of your Son. We thank you for sending him in grace and love, not because we deserve it, but because you are willing to give us the opposite of what we deserve. You gave us Christ. You sent him to to live a life of sinless perfection and then to die as a sacrifice on the cross, as a substitute so that he has lived and died and risen again for whosoever will believe in him. That we might have eternal life, that we might have forgiveness, that we would be gifted the righteousness of Christ that you would love us and, and look at us and treat us as if we lived his life. That you would put that righteousness upon us. And you do this because you have placed our sin on him and treated him as if he had lived out our sin. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being willing to go through this. We thank you that you are so committed to us that you're even reigning now at the Father's right hand. You're interceding for us. You're you're pleading on our behalf and that you have sent the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we can have the very presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in us to make us new and to grow us in this new covenant life. Help us understand more and more what it means to to be committed to you, to count the cost of remaining committed. And help us to do this with our eyes fixed on a moment when we will see your face and live for you no matter what may come. Help us to share this gospel with others who do, do not yet know you who will receive judgment from your very own hands if they do not turn to you and give us hearts that are moved because of that don't let us become dull or weary in the way we think about these things but create the right affections in us so that we can love you with our heart and our soul our mind and strength that you would receive glory and this would be the best thing for us. And so we we ask that you'd help us in this and we, we praise you for your great faithfulness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.